Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is Marshall Trimble, who has been referred to as the Will Rogers of Arizona. Since 1997, he has been Arizona's official state historian and goodwill representative. He is the author of over 25 books on Arizona history and other Western subjects. He writes a regular column for True West magazine entitled Ask the Marshal, as well as regularly contributing articles. His most recent article, which focuses on his friendship with cowboy actor Ben Johnson, was published in the November 2021 issue of True West magazine, which is currently available on newsstands in bookstores and by subscription. Hello, friend. How are you today? Glad to be here. I'm interested in your road to becoming Arizona's official state historian. That's quite an honor and not something you achieve by taking online courses, watching how-to videos on YouTube, or campaigning for the position via TikTok. It started in a kind of funny way. A state senator called me and wanted to make me state historian, and I didn't want to get mixed up in the politics that I thought that might involve with this crazy legislature. So I politely declined, and I thought that was it. But I mentioned it to my wife, and she complained. She said, people ask me all the time, what does he really do? You're a folk singer. You're a storyteller. You're a history teacher, a professor, and an author, and you do all that stuff. I wish I just had one thing I could say, and that would do it. And she said, state historian would have been perfect. I said, if it ever comes up again, I'll accept. And sooner than I thought, I was approached by some school teachers, which was a much nicer situation for me because I basically was an educator. And to come from teachers, it seems a whole lot more appropriate than being a political appointee or somebody who maybe lobbied to get the job. I certainly would have never done that. I said, you have to go to the governor because those guys only do something if they want to. And it's their idea. And they'll put you on hold for a long time and stall you around. But you might have to persevere. And they did. One in particular, she just wouldn't give up. A little fourth grade teacher. That's where they teach Arizona history. She just kept going. Pretty soon I got a call from the governor's office, wanted to know, could I come down for a ceremony down at the old Capitol? So I did. That was 1997. I like to tell people he was later removed from office later that year because of me, but I didn't get many. <laughs> I let it go. It's nice to have the teachers on your side, though. I visited a lot of schools in my time and talked to fourth graders. I like fourth graders because they still think adults are neat. You go into some of these higher grades and they're too smart for you. They're trying too hard to be cool. They'll put on their tombstone someday. He thought he was cool. I just never felt as comfortable as I did in front of a bunch of little fourth graders. Marshall, you've been called the Will Rogers of Arizona. You can deliver anything from serious history lecture to a stage concert to cowboy folk music and stories. How did you get into all of this cowboy stuff to begin with? Well, in a way, Paul, I was born to it, I guess, because the Trimbles came to San Antonio about 1840. So that was really early. That was before Texas was a state. They ranched. My great-grandfather acted as a lawman for a while, and they just had a colorful life. My dad was born in San Antonio and came to Arizona as a young man. He cowboyed up in the Tonto Basin here in Arizona. Right up until I was eight years old, he was a stockman, but he never owned his own. I don't think he ever graduated from grade school. Let's just say it was hard scrabble. He had to quit school to work. He was the oldest son. He never had much of an education. He never had a lot of confidence in doing anything but being a cowhand. 
He courted my mother on horseback in Tempe. She was a young high school girl. He was 10 years older. He took a liking to her and he, he wouldn't let up. She lived on a farm and he rode a zebra dun over to her house about every day. And they eventually married in 1935. Three boys were born there and we just grew up. That was our life out on a stockman's place. But he didn't own his own. He was always working somebody else's property. Finally, in 1945, his father died and he decided he wanted to sell the cows. He and his dad had together. He sold the cows and hired out for the Santa Fe Railroad. He told me so many stories about his father and his grandfather. I just grew up listening to all that. You worked your way into teaching Arizona history for four decades. Yeah, I tried some other things. I was a coach for a while at a school in Mesa. I liked it okay, but I knew I wanted to do something else. So I quit that and tried some other jobs. Everything I tried in my 20s, I didn't like. And I was approaching 30 years old. I'd never done anything. I was at a loss. My younger brother was going to vet school in Fort Collins to be an equine vet. And he got a job working on a ranch up in Montana. He called me up and he said, Marshall, you doing anything? And I said, no, just drifting. He said, come on up to Denver and I'll pick you up and we'll work in Montana. I caught a plane, I think, that night. He picked me up in Denver. We drove all the way to Miles City. Of course, I was a big fan of Charlie Russell, the artist. My dad was a big Charlie Russell fan. He could look at those renderings and tell you exactly what that cowboy was doing and why. I was just riveted by those stories. And I got up there and I thought, gosh, this Montana country looks like a Charlie Russell painting. We were working on horseback, driving a herd of cattle up to Miles City to the railroad stockyards. They had an old bar there. Gambling wasn't legal anywhere but Nevada then. We went in there and they were playing blackjack. That old broken down cowboy was dealing in this bar. I thought I was a slicker because when I was a folk singer, I worked in Las Vegas and I learned to blackjack. I thought, I'll take this guy's money. And that old slow broken fingered cowboy started dealing cards. Next thing I know, he's got all my money. And I said, isn't gambling illegal in Nevada? And he says, hell, we don't care. This is Montana. That's the kind of spirit I like. It was beginning to take hold on me. I still love Montana. We'd been driving around, killing time, and we hit a snowstorm. So we turned south and we wound up in a little town and we took our saddles and out of the back of the truck and threw them inside a motel room so they wouldn't get wet. It was such a small town, but there was a little museum. We walked in and I said, where are we? And the little old lady looked like a little librarian. She said, you're in Hardin, Montana. Don't you know where you are? I said, what goes on in this town? And she said, just a few miles out of town was Custer's last stand. And we got all kinds of Custer stuff in here. And she started telling stories about General Custer and the little bighorn. The only thing I knew about Custer was that Earl Flynn played him and died with her boots on. I thought, God, this is fascinating stuff. She's just spinning these stories about the cavalry. And she's on your way back to Fort Collins. You'll go right by the battlefield. Why don't you guys have a look? So next morning, we loaded up and headed that way towards Sheridan, Wyoming. But as we were leaving southern Montana, there was the Custer Battlefield. There was nobody around. There was no museum there like there is now. There was nothing out there except grave markers everywhere they'd found a trooper. I wandered off by myself, just standing there looking at some graves, and I felt a presence around me. The strangest feeling came over me. I felt I wasn't alone. I've been told that People get the same feeling in Shiloh and Gettysburg and things like that, too. But it really happened to me. We were driving on down. I was driving. My brother fell asleep, and I reached over and shoved him, and I said, I think I know what I want to do now. I want to teach Western history. 
And I want to tell these stories to young people. Kids need to know this is their heritage. I got on my soapbox and finally I said, I don't think they have such a class. And my brother said, you can start one. When I got back to Phoenix and enrolled at ASU, they had one class in Western history. I took it and then I was really hooked. I started taking other types of classes that were related to it. And I thought, I guess I'm ready to go see if I can get hired. So wearing boots and jeans and a Western shirt, I walked into this high school in Scottsdale and I said, do y'all need a history teacher? We lost one of our teachers last week and, and school starts in another week or so. Can you coach football? I'd seen some games on TV and I just said, sure, I can do that. And they said, we need a assist varsity coach. He didn't even ask me if I knew any history because I didn't. I was going to read the book ahead of the students each week and just stay ahead of the students and fake my way through my first year. And that's exactly what I did. Instead of the typical traditional American history course, because none of these kids had ever been to Boston or Philadelphia or New York. And almost all of the American history books were published back there. And they completely avoided the West. One mentioned Lewis and Clark and one mentioned Cortez. Cortez wasn't even here. He was in Mexico City. He wasn't even up this way. And that was their treatment of the American West then. So I thought, I'm going to teach it my way. I started teaching. I told them stories about Billy the Kid and Jesse James. And these kids were just fascinated because they could relate to all of that. They saw these people in the movies, and now they're finding out what they were really like. Finally, the department chair called me. I thought it was in hot water. He said, we offer a class called Southwest History. You think you could write the curriculum for it and teach it? Of course, I said, sure, bring it on. Something like 300 plus kids actually signed up for it. They gave me 10 sections. I started teaching five seconds each semester. After a year of it, I got a call from the local community college. They said, we'd like to have somebody teach an Arizona class up here. Can you do that at night? I said, yeah, I can write the curriculum. I'll do it. So I was teaching Arizona at night and American or Southwest during the day. I was getting a pretty good education just for all I had to read to make it interesting. You were working at something you loved doing, which means you really weren't working. You loved history. You loved teaching. You loved the reading. That must have been a real joy. Yeah. About the second semester teaching Arizona, I had mostly adults. And one woman said, hey, this textbook is really boring. Why don't you write a book? And I said, I couldn't even write a good term paper in high school. I'm not going to write a book. She said, tell your stories. Tell us the stories that you're telling us like these. Just write them. So I did. It took about three or four years to put a manuscript together. And I didn't know. I thought if you just wrote a book, it got published. <laughs> but I had a lot to learn. I submitted it. And it was returned immediately by a university press here in Arizona. They said, it isn't scholarly. I said, I didn't want it to be scholarly. That was a trouble. My students didn't want to read a scholarly book. They wanted to just read an interesting book that they could feel like they knew Arizona. They said, we're a scholarly press. I said, oh, okay. So I was all set to throw the manuscript away. Put so much time on it. Only had one copy. I stopped by a local bookstore that specialized in Western books. The lady there, Ruth Cohen was her name, and she said, give me that thing. There's a man in the store right now from Doubleday. I'm going to make him take it. But she took the manuscript out of my hand, went across the store, and told this guy, she said, you've got to read this. This is the best thing on Arizona I have ever read. He said, I'm flying back to New York tonight. I'll take a look at it. I got a call about five or six weeks later. I don't know if I'd take a $10,000 advance for the rights and <laughs> that was more money than I was making at teaching school. I said, yeah, uh, I think I could do that. 
I signed it, put it right back in the mail. <laughs> so that's where it all started. Then I began to worry. I thought, it's not any good. What are my students going to think? They won't say anything, but they'll feel bad for me. I don't need that. I can take it. But I was really afraid it was going to be panned by the critics. But when it came out, it made the front page of the entertainment section of the state largest newspaper and sold out the whole first edition in about a week. That's fantastic. Doubleday was happy and I was happy. And this has led to 20 more books at this point? 25, I think. Maybe 26 now. I stopped counting when I ran my toes and fingers. Uh, <laughs> when did you start your long-term relationship with True West Magazine? I'd known Bob Bose Bell. We were both from northern Arizona. We had just met somewhere along the way down here in the valley. And we were in Oklahoma researching something. And we stopped in Stillwater. Uh, and that was the base for True West Magazine. The owner of the magazine had died. And he was losing money big time. Bob got together with some friends. I was invited to participate, but I thought everything I ever invested in, I lost my shirt. So I politely said no. But when they moved the magazine out to Cave Creek, Arizona, Bob said, how would you like to write a column? I've already got a good name for it. Ask the Marshal. And I thought, yeah, it didn't take me long to make up my mind. And it turned out to be the smartest move I ever made. That was more than 20 years ago. I got a lot of exposure from it, too. But it was like a graduate course, looking up and answering all kinds of questions and all kinds of subjects. To this day, I still love it. When he said, I'd like to write three blogs a week for True West Magazine for the Internet, I said, what's a blog? And he said, is that crap you write all the time, Marshall? <laughs> so I said, oh, I can do that. So I started writing blogs. The speaking engagements started rolling in because of the books. In fact, that started in the mid-1970s. Then an agent got a hold of me, and I found out I could make $1,000, $1,500 just to appear somewhere. I was still making teacher salary, which was starvation. I had been a folk singer back in the early 1960s during the folk revival. I learned to play the guitar and entertain and bars mostly. I'd been using the guitar in class every once in a while. The students really enjoyed it. So I thought, I'll just take the guitar along with me. I'll tell some stories and do a Western song or two doing just what I'd always wanted to do, but didn't quite know what it was until I got into it. A very multifaceted career. You also have your own popular Western podcast, The Marshal and the Madam, along with co-host Sherry Monahan, where myths and mysteries of the frontier get revealed, which is a subject we discuss regularly over here on the Six Gun Justice podcast as we dig into the pop culture legacies of some of the West's biggest personalities. What was the <laughs> impetus for you starting the podcast? I'd known Sherry through the magazine. She was in North Carolina. We were going to do it remotely. That was about three months ago, so it hadn't been very long. Sherry was doing the famous madams, and I was doing famous lawmen, and I was going to talk about peace officers and gunfighters and things like that, because the public is fascinated by that stuff. They always have been, and I guess they always will be. There was a magic about gunfighters, because they were independent. They were decisive. I don't know what it is about people who are just fascinated by John Wesley Harden and Wyatt Earp and Billy the Kid. It was unnatural. We've done about 26 episodes now, I think. That's outstanding. So, I'm certainly interested in all those things, so I'll be listening in. Yeah, please do. and Let me know what you think. I just have that fascination I never lost from that morning at the Little Bighorn, being out there when something came over me. I just never strayed. Marshall, thanks for being with me today and taking time out of your busy schedule. I've enjoyed it. I get to talking about those early days, and I probably talked your arm off.
I really appreciate you. And hopefully you and I will talk again in the future. I hope so, too. Okay. So long. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep learning about Western history. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.